God gave his approval to people in days of old because of their faith. All right, so you have the splash page up there on the screen right now and you're getting comfortable in your living room or maybe listening to this at your computer desk or wherever you are out walking and you're ready to hear God's word. You're ready for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Life is good and uh, we're gonna just dive into God's word together. We've been in the book of Hebrews since January and, and I wanna just say this to you, Bridgeway Church, if, if you don't understand grace by now, like you better be a visitor. You better be new to our church and new to the faith because we have just been hammering the idea of grace. Seriously, I've been pastor here at Bridgeway for three years now and I've been a grace junkie here, been slamming it home for you. We had former places and we, Darren and I, as we've talked, we've just realized how, how legalism creeps in the edges, how insidiously relentless it is even in our own lives and we have covenanted together as your spiritual leaders, that we're just going to preach grace to you. So we've been preaching grace hard. We preached it through the book of Luke. We preached it through the book of Galatians. We're preaching it now in the book of Hebrews, just relentlessly. Pastor Darren and I, when we get together, we pray grace over each other. We pray that we would come to a deeper understanding of the grace that we have through Jesus Christ. And we pray that for you as well. We pray that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, that grace would just permeate every aspect of your life. We want grace to saturate us as a church and us as the followers of Jesus Christ. Now, grace literally means that when it comes to your salvation, you didn't do a thing. You did nothing. Christ did it all and you did nothing. And you don't always get that, do you? Like we, we are always trying to add to the finished work of Christ. And yet Jesus saved you. You didn't save yourself. When it comes to your salvation, you did nothing. And you know what? It doesn't just start with grace. It continues with grace because grace is involved in your sanctification. It is the grace of Jesus in every moment of every day that makes you more and more like him. And so even as you walk with him, grace is so important. And grace is also important at the very end where you're going to be glorified. When Jesus appears, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. But that's going to be something that he's going to do. It's not because you and I are contributing something to that. When he appears, we're going to be like him. Not because we're special. Not because you're all that and a box of chips. No. When he appears, you will be like him. Glorification because of his grace. Unmerited favor, the free gift of God. And that is a tough message for all of your rule-loving, rule-following, rule-enforcing little hearts. You love legalism far more than you realize. And you think you've got it all figured out, this walk of faith. And if everybody just did what you did and walked the way that you walked, they would just be a little bit more like Jesus. We all do this. We all want to make our faith journey normative for other people. Man, if you're not reading X number of books per week, how can you even call yourself a Christian? Man, how can you call yourself a Christian if you use those words? We have all sorts of rules that we want to add in. I get it. I get it. I, I do the same thing. 
Like personally, just the other day, as the elders were meeting, we were talking about adding new elders. And I, I, I threw in the idea that leaders are readers. And the elders called me on it. And they said, you know, leaders are learners. Not everyone is a reader. And maybe, Pastor Nick, your own love for reading has become a legalism in your life. Can someone be a follower of Christ and not be a very good reader? Absolutely. And so I'm trying to impose my rules on other people. And you do that too. We evaluate performance. We judge others. We make naughty and nice lists like little sanctimonious Santa Clauses. We do that. I, I do that. And, and so this part of my heart was really excited to be getting close to Hebrews chapter 11. I mean, I got to say in my own life, Hebrews 11 and 12 are very formative Bible passages. And I, I was gunning for the point today when we could get to them. They're so chock full of beautiful doctrine, real meat for the spiritually hungry, walking by faith. Oh man, all the heroes of old who who did all these great things for God, right? And so I was just wanting to get to Hebrews 11, chomping at the bit. Anyone who wants to come to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so let's go seek him. And this is what it looks like, A and B and C. And uh, now I'm like we're in Hebrews 11, but I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Yeah, I know. Ephesians 2. Funny way to lead into Hebrews 11, but here's the thing. On Monday, Ephesians 2 showed up in my personal devotions. On Tuesday, I got a missionary letter from someone that I'm praying for in my inbox, and, and Ephesians 2 was in that person's letter. My son gets with me in the hot tub on Wednesday, and he starts talking about a memory verse that he's learning, and he starts quoting, and it's Ephesians 2. And I mean, I, I'm a little bit thick sometimes. Uh, I, I can be a bit of a lug. I can be a little bit of a credulous boomerube who thinks y'all elitists are dumb. I, I can be that, but Usually when God repeats himself, when he says something more than once, um, I kind of start paying attention. And so I want to share Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 10 with you. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2. Now, now sometimes when God brings me back to a very, very familiar passage, a passage that I've known almost my entire life, it's often to show me something new, something that I may not have seen before or something that I need to apply to my life, even if I've seen it before. You might notice that I I read a a little more literal translation than I normally use, and that's because the word order in the Greek is kind of important. It stood out to me. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not something that you have done. It is a gift of God. And I was like, what is the it referring to? in this very, very familiar passage of scripture. What is the it? See, there's three things that are referred to before this. For it is by grace you've been saved, salvation, through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Is is grace 
the gift? Is salvation the gift? Those are both mentioned before the it. What's the gift? For some of us, the gift of God is obviously grace, right? Grace in its very definition is a, is a gift. It's unmerited favor. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. And, and, and so we say, okay, the grace is the gift, but the faith to believe it, well, that's, that's up to us, isn't it? Like, like he gives the gift and then we need to open the gift. Grace is God's part and the faith is our part. That's what we think, do you see how insidiously relentless performance and legalism can be in our lives? Grace is God's part, that's the gift, but now the faith, the actual work, that's all up to me? That's not what it says. The it is referring to the faith. Famed theologian Abram Kuyper writes, Lest you should now begin to say, well, I deserve credit at least for believing, I will immediately add that even this faith is not of yourselves. It is God's gift. He's right. The gift of God in this passage in Ephesians 2 is primarily the faith that we have to receive God's grace and be saved by it. That's the gift even your ability to believe is not a work that you do. It is a gift from God. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's God's unmerited favor to us. But even the ability to receive that grace, to believe, to have faith in it, to put your trust in it, even that ability comes from God. Christ has done it all. And you've done nothing. And so we're always learning about this, this grace. We're always reminding ourselves that God loved us while we were still sinners, that Jesus died for us while we were still his enemies, grace. But, but, but wouldn't it be nice if this is true, if what Pastor Nick is saying true, that this, this faith in Ephesians 2 is also a gift from God? Wouldn't it be nice if somewhere God actually told us what faith was? Wouldn't it be cool if God actually defined faith for us somewhere in the Bible? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of the things we cannot yet see. Now, I don't know where I first heard it, where I first read it, or who preached it the first time, but it's, it's just a part of my understanding. As I read this passage and I see this definition of faith, I, just, I see two things. I see future things, and I see invisible things. And, and that's the realm that, that grace and faith operates in, the realm of future things and the realm of invisible things, things that haven't yet happened and things that we can't see, that we can't measure scientifically. That's where faith operates, what we hope for, future things, and the evidence of things we cannot see, invisible things. So that's how I've always understood this passage. But again, this week as I was studying this very familiar passage of Scripture, the Holy Spirit began to quicken a new thought in me, began to help me see something maybe I hadn't seen before, a new realization and maybe a deeper understanding from this beloved verse. Faith is the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. 
Faith is birthed in discontentment. Look at it again. The reality of what we hope for. Now, do you hope for things that you already have? Of course not, right? You have them. You hope for something you don't have yet. You're not satisfied. You want something else, something more. If there is hope in you, it is because the current state of your life is marked by discontentment. If you have the hope that one day you're going to have more money, it's because you're dissatisfied right now with how much money you currently have, right? So you're hoping for more money one day. If you have the hope that one day you're going to be skinny, it's because you don't think you're skinny right now. And newsflash, you probably aren't. You cannot live on chocolate and chips in this pandemic and not have it catch up to you. Trust me, I'm there with you. And if you have the hope that one day this crazy pandemic is going to be over, it's because... Well, because it's not over yet, right? Discontentment, dissatisfaction is an essential foundational element of your faith. You are not supposed to be content in this life. That's not how God has done it. That's not what God's doing. This life is supposed to be frustrating. It's supposed to be incomplete. It's supposed to be unsatisfying. In the book of Romans, God says he has subjected creation to frustration. And you know what? If you've got a friend who isn't a Christian, the best place for them to start their first faith journey is in this discontentment. Because if they're in a place where they're happy and they're comfortable with their current life without Jesus, there isn't a whole lot you can say to them. It's only when the Holy Spirit begins to quicken their, their, their ideas and help them look at their lives and say, you know, as, as rich and as comfortable and as peaceful as my life is, it's empty. There's something more. There's something that's not right. It's only that discontentment that the Holy Spirit starts to stir up in them that is going to lead them to faith and to grace and to Jesus. And so if you're discontent with your life right now, I submit to you that maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe that is a sign to you right now that you are currently settling for less than God's best for you. Maybe it is a signal that God is starting to catalyze something deeper in you, a deeper faith. Maybe it's a preparation that God is preparing you for something deeper another good work I'm finding in my own life as I look back that almost all of my best moments with Jesus were preceded by a period of restlessness like faith starts to stir up these placid waters of lassitude and apathy in me. My ennui does not please God. And faith gets quickened in that dissatisfaction, that, that, that thought that as good as this life is, there's something missing. The reality of what we hope for. My friends, don't put your hope in anything but God and God alone. He's the only one that can satisfy. Jesus is simply better than everything else in life. So don't settle for less. 
Let anything in your life that is less than all of Jesus create in you hunger. So, faith is a gift from God. It's not something that you do in your own strength. It comes as a gift. Faith is quickened in dissatisfaction and in that ability to look at your life and say something's missing. Let's read on. In fact, let's read on verse 2 through 7. Darren read it from the NIV. I'm going to read from New Living Translation. Verse 2. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. And by faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, and that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. Verse 4 is by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he speaks to us still by his example of faith. Verse 5, it was by faith that Enoch was taken up into heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. And it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Verse 7, it was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about things that had never happened before. And by his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world And he received the righteousness that comes by faith. Okay, so there's so much in this passage. And we'll get to those three stories in just a moment's time. But I want to just draw your attention first to verse 6. Anyone who comes to God must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. And here's the third part of what faith is. We begin by recognizing that faith is God's gift to us. It's not something we do. It's something he gives to us. We continue by allowing that discontentment in our spirits to, to, to saturate us, to not be content with anything less than all of God. And then we simply start searching, right? We start pressing into God. Whatever we know of him and however he shows up in our lives, we just want more of him. There's something unseen out there. There's something that we long for, we hunger, and it, and it leads us to Jesus and we start drawing closer to Jesus, Now, now I know some of you, you've been Christians, like, as long as you can remember, right? Like, you were born in the faith, right? You you came out of the womb, the doctor spanked you, and you looked at the doctor, and you said, I forgive you because I'm a believer. (laughs) Like, that's your testimony for some of you. Like, some of us, it happened that fast. And that's great, right? This is the testimony that every Christian parent wants for their children, right? I've believed in Jesus my whole life. I've always made right right choices. Jesus has never been a stranger. I've never needed to try drugs. I've never needed to get arrested. I've never needed to have a baby out of wedlock or any of the other things that give parents heart attacks, right? As a parent, as a believing parent, that's the testimony you want your children to have. But for others of you, faith came along at a little later point in your life, and it was birthed in discontentment. You knew something was wrong. Something was missing in your life. 
And for some of you, you started looking, right? You went looking. And maybe you even looked at other religions and other faiths, and eventually you, you found Jesus. And, and for others of you, you weren't even looking. You had an idea something was wrong. You weren't really looking. And Jesus just showed up one day like, like he found you. And I love those testimonies too. I love the way that each one of us comes to God in slightly different ways, but we all come by grace through faith. Yeah. And then you just start to press into that, right? Like you find yourself talking to an invisible person. That's crazy. You start reading a book that's thousands of years old. Like, how is this relevant to my life today? And yet it is. And you start hanging out with some really weird people, these Christians. And when you can't hang out with them, you kind of miss them. It's like, I miss you crazy people. It hardly makes sense. But you just start pressing in to God as he's pressing into you. That's faith. And if you're listening to this sermon online and you don't yet know God and you haven't given yourself completely to him, the lesson here is simply that you don't get to decide how you come to God. Your salvation, your freedom, your wholeness, your healing, it is completely his work from start to finish. You add nothing to it. You just accept it. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You just come and you allow him to forgive and to clean and to purify and to make you whole. I'm not trying to be arrogant or anything. This is just the truth. None of us get to decide how we come to God. And yet so many of us still think it's this crazy balancing scale where where maybe if we do enough good things, it'll outweigh the bad things in our life. And it's like, dude, what scale are you using? Are you serious? You can't impress God with a few nice things that you did late one night because you were feeling nostalgic and you thought you might get some reward for it. Come on. God is perfect. He's pure. He's holy. What do you have that impresses him? All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. And he made something beautiful of my life. God is saying to you, Christ did it all. You do nothing. Like, like, like my altar is closed. Stop cluttering it up with your filthy rag righteousness. That altar is pure and clean and holy because the blood of my son Jesus Christ has made it clean. You don't bring anything to this equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Do you get that? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. <laughs> the free gift of God is, is insanity to our fleshly minds. It makes no sense to our unregenerated minds, but it is the one thing that separates Christianity from every other false religion out there. You know, other religions have a God who comes in the flesh. Christianity's not unique there. Other religions have a God who dies for the people. Christianity is not unique in that. Other religions have some of those pieces. But all the other religions in the world add in, here's what you must do. Because this was done, here's what you must do. Here's what you have to do in order to earn it. Here's the list. Here's the rules. Here's the pillars. You have to do something in order to become worthy of it. 
not Christian faith. Christian faith asserts that none of us are worthy, but that Jesus is. Christian faith asserts that in Jesus, God's paid the bill completely for all of us, once and for all. No other sacrifice necessary, no other work required. All you do is you just take a deep breath and you trust in it. It's crazy, but it's beautiful. Okay, and three quick stories now to kind of illustrate this idea, okay? First of all, uh, faith is trusting in Jesus to leave a legacy even in death. By faith, Abel brought a more acceptable offering. And, and Abel, I mean, if you're not familiar with your Bibles, like we're going right back to the beginning, right? If you're not familiar with your Bibles, we're on page three, <laughs> Genesis chapter four. And if you don't know the story, it goes like this a little bit. Adam and Eve are the first created human beings, and, and they have a couple of kids, And the first two of their kids are two boys, Cain and Abel. And in the course of time, both boys grow up a little bit and they decide that they're going to bring an offering to God. And God accepts Abel's offering and God does not accept Cain's offering. And so in a fit of anger or jealousy, Cain loses his temper and kills his brother Abel. It is a tragic, tragic story. But what is even more tragic to me is the number of well-meaning Christians who completely butcher the story of Cain and Abel. Like they make it about performance. They make it about following the rules. They make it about legalism. They completely misquote Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And they ignore Hebrews 10.4. It's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They just completely do that. And they look at this and they go, well, Abel's offering was accepted by God because it was a blood offering. Because he killed an animal. The next time that someone tries to tell you that God accepts Abel's offering, offering because he kills a sheep and God doesn't accept Cain's offering because he offers fruit and grains you haul off and you smack them you just do it like you got to get that heresy out of them you got to be I'm kidding but but this is heresy it is garbage listen to me very carefully because God's word tells us why God accepts Abel's offering And by implication, why God does not accept Cain's offering. And it has nothing to do with dead animals versus produce. Read your Bibles because produce that is offered to God in faith also pleases God. Leviticus 2, Leviticus 6, Leviticus 7, Leviticus 10. No, no, no. It is the presence of faith in Abel and it is the absence of faith in Cain. That's it. That's the difference. That's what God's word says. Anything else is a lie from the pit of Satan. Faith is what matters. Abel's faith. Let me ask you a question. If Cain had brought an offering of grain in faith and if Abel had brought an offering of blood an animal sacrifice without faith what sacrifice would God have accepted without faith it's impossible to please God you could kill a thousand bulls 
And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.4 says, although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us because he offered blood. No, that's not what it says. He still speaks to us because of his faith. Faith is trusting in Jesus to leave a legacy, even in death. Don't you want that kind of a legacy when it's your time to go? Like, don't you want people saying that about you? That man was far from perfect, but man, he had a perfect trust in a perfect God, and he is perfectly forgiven because of a perfect Jesus. That's the legacy that Abel leaves to us. It's the legacy that I hope to leave one day when my time on earth is through. Oh, yeah, Enoch, <laughs> taking up, speaking of time on earth being through. Faith is trusting in Jesus to walk with God through all of your life. Enoch is another story from Genesis, and it's a really cool little story. Enoch is a really interesting character. He's like the great-granddad of Noah, so he's got some great kids. Um, but you're reading through the Bible, and you get to Genesis chapter 5, and you get to those begats, right? Begats, 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 begats. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and they lived X number of years, and then they died, and then so-and-so so begat so-and-so, and it's really tough slogging, right, in Genesis chapter 5. And as you're reading it in Genesis 5, you start to notice, you go, hey, these guys are living like a really, really long time. Adam, on 930 years. Seth, 912 years. Enosh, 905 years. And so you're just starting to wonder, what's up with all of this? How did these guys live so long? And just as you're wondering that, you get to Enoch in Genesis 5.23, and it says Enoch lived 365 years. Wait, what? He he only lives a third as long as everybody else? Yeah, three times as long as most of us will live, but only a third as long as everybody else, and you kind of go to yourself, Enoch, What did you do? Well, how bad were you that God had to kill you? No, no, Enoch didn't sin. He trusts God. Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his loved ones. Enoch walks with God, and not just at the end of his life when he's taken up to heaven without dying. No, no. Genesis 5.24 says that Enoch enjoys a close relationship with God his whole life. He lives in close fellowship with God his entire life. Everyone looks at Enoch and they go, man, that guy, that guy knows God. He walks with him. He trusts him in every moment of every day. He lives by faith. I love how Ray Stedman puts it. Ray Stedman tells the story of a little girl who hears the story of Enoch in Sunday school and she comes home and she's telling it to her mom and she says, Mom, Enoch just liked to take long walks with Jesus. And one day Jesus says to Enoch, Hey, we're closer to my home right now than we are to yours. You want to come over? I love that. Enoch walks with God. Now, We don't always do that, do we? I mean, so much of our lives, we're not walking. We're dragging our feet, right? We're questioning God. We're attracted by sin and we're we're running away from God and running towards sin. And we're refusing to follow God's bringing us to something that is too too much or too scary. and, And we're so obstinate. We give sheep a bad name. You give sheep a bad name. Yeah, and there's something in your life right now I can pretty well guarantee it. You're dragging your feet 
God has been asking you, he's been calling you, he's been leading in this direction, and yet you're resisting him. You silly little sheep, just trust in him and walk with him. Faith is trusting in a great big God. He can move a mountain. He can calm a sea. Faith is trusting in a great big God. He takes care of you and me. And that brings us to our third story. The faith is trusting in Jesus when the answer is slow to come and when the storm finally hits. By faith, Noah built an ark. Now, I, I, I don't know how this happened, but I really think the story of Noah lost something when we decided that we were going to turn it into a bedtime story for our little kids. I mean, I cannot for the life of me figure out why we did this. We took a story about the destruction of the entire earth, and we turned it into pajamas and cookies and milk at the end of the day. Daddy, why are two sheep going into the boat? Because, little buddy, God kills sinners. God destroys the people who disobey him. Now, do you want to pray or not? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord. Like, why do we do that? A few years ago, there's a movie made about a modern-day guy that God, looking suspiciously like Morgan Freeman, asks to build an ark, heaven almighty, it got terrible reviews, but it was a cute little movie. And I remember watching the movie and just all, being struck by how completely insane Noah must have looked to all of his neighbors, just, just building an ark in the middle of his driveway. There's a flood coming. What's a flood? Hebrew says it never happened before. Noah starts building a boat hundreds of kilometers away from any water, a thousand times too big for his family. It takes him like decades, a hundred years or so to build. And then he starts stocking it with animals, two of every kind, because he claims that God's told him there's a flood coming. This is not normal behavior. A rational, ordinary human being would be like, okay, uh, we're gonna get your application in for the home. You know, at Christmas time, I preached about the Magi on December 22nd. And sometimes when you preach, you preach to yourself. God just talks to you and everybody else just gets to listen. And there was one thing that I said back then in December that just, it haunts me to this day. Quote, most, most of us need to shake things up in our faith walk. God's always moving. God's always inventing. God's always creating. And if you're going to keep up with him, maybe you need to shake up the status quo. The wise men did not meet Jesus by staying in the same place and doing the same things. Maybe you need to shake up the status quo. Do something in your faith walk that you've never done before. It's crazy to think that when I preached that back in December, we had no idea that in just a few short weeks there was going to be this global pandemic that was going to shake up all of our lives. God just took the entire planet and kind of shook us. And so maybe you need to start trusting in Jesus when it feels like the answer is slow in coming, like Noah. Or maybe you need to trust in Jesus 
when the storm has finally hit, like Noah. Trusting in Jesus when the storm hits or when the answer is slow. Faith. You know, Matt and Michael sang an old hymn today, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." I hope that resonated with you because really they preached my message for me. That's, that's the essence of faith. It's just trusting in everything that Jesus has done. Trusting that Jesus has done everything. Just placing your reliance completely, wholeheartedly, unreservedly on him. And maybe when they sang that hymn and you got to the final line of the chorus, maybe that became your own prayer. Oh, for grace to trust him more. I hope the message this morning has helped you in that, that you're seeing your faith as a gift from God, not something you do, something he gives to you. That you're seeing the valuable role that discontentment and dissatisfaction can actually play in your faith walk, hoping for things yet to come, and that you're pressing into God, trusting in Jesus to leave a legacy in death, trusting in Jesus to walk with him through all of life, trusting in Jesus when the answer is slow to come, trusting in Jesus when the storm hits. And it just, I want to I wanna close by going back to where we started, circling back around to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so then none of us can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And there's a beautiful word in there, workmanship. Some of your translations say handiwork. Some of them even say masterpiece. It's the Greek word poema. It's a poem, a work of art, a beautiful painting, a sculpture. But look at it very carefully. You are God's work of art. You're not the master. You're not the one who's adding the paint or chipping away the rubble. You're not the one who's putting the words together. You're God's masterpiece. He's the one who's creating you. He's the one who's shaping you. He's the one who's moving in you. He's the one who's making your life beautifully. Fearfully and wonderfully made. No matter what your limitations are, no no, no matter what you're facing in life, he's the one who's creating you to be his masterpiece. And so this week, Will you just trust him, faith? Will you just like walk with him, faith? Will you just live this week in close fellowship with your creator, the God who loves you, the savior who died for you, the king who directs you, the shepherd who cares for you, faith? This week, would you just allow him 
to make you into his masterpiece. Faith. I would ask you to rise for the benediction, but you're at home. So if you choose to stand up, that's up to you. I'm going to be reading from the end of the book of Hebrews. This is the conclusion to his letter. But he says to the church, the believers in Christ, who are full of faith, he says, now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. May he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.